Good morning, my name's John Ross. Uh, I'm the assistant pastor here at Crawford Avenue. Uh, you may have seen me, if you've been here another Sunday morning, you may have seen me uh, leading in worship in the congregational singing. Uh, that's one of the things that I oversee here at Crawford Avenue. Another uh, area that I oversee is our small groups ministry. And uh, over the last eight or nine months as elders, we've been talking about how can we make our small groups ministry better? There are things that we're missing from and elements that didn't quite fit. And so we've been talking these things through. We've been reading, we've been praying, we've been studying. And uh, this next semester, when we come up to, our, to the fall, up in uh, August, September, we're gonna be launching a new system of, uh, we used to call them home groups, but we'll call them community groups. And a lot of this shift has to do with needing to reach our neighbors. It was something that we really weren't doing well before. And so we want to move to a model that allows us to reach our neighbors and our neighborhoods. Now, when I say neighbors and neighborhoods, I mean, we think about Harrisburg. This will kind of be like uh, ground zero for us to minister. But I'm actually talking about your neighborhood, where you live, the neighbors that are next to you. How can we reach those who are around us? And as we approach this, we're going to be uh, getting a little bit deeper on Wednesday nights through our summer study series, talking about what does this look like? uh, What is the theology and philosophy of ministry that we have behind this push? And then how do we execute that? That'll be happening on Wednesday nights, uh, starting this Wednesday. So I'd love to have, have you out as we talk about these things. So in approaching this, we have to say, why would we do something like this? I mean, why is this important? Why is this something that we would focus our attention on. Who is our neighbor? What is our responsibility? So as we do this, we approach our text this morning, Luke 10. Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. If you're using one of the black Bibles in front of you, it's page 869. Okay, let's go to this passage together. Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that being Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, 
and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Allow us to know you in a fuller sense this morning as we study your word together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, we're jumping into this verse sort of out of context, right? We're not in a series on Luke. So let's just kind of parachute in and see where we're landing, okay? Now, the book of Luke has actually two different books that split up, but Luke's account has the Gospel of Luke, and it also has the book of Acts. And in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells about the birth of Jesus. The next section, he moves to the deeds of Jesus. After that, he moves to the way of Jesus. And then he moves to Jesus in Jerusalem, where Jesus is crucified, buried, and rises again. After that, it moves to Acts, and Jesus ascends to heaven, and his gospel goes forth into all the world, including even uh, Rome, which was uh, the capital of the world, so to speak, at that time. So the passage that we're in today is in this section on the way of Jesus. Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem, where he will ultimately be crucified. And along this path, Luke is telling us what is the way of Jesus. What is What does it mean to follow Jesus and to be a part of Jesus's crew and disciples? So uh, Jesus has just sent the disciples out and they've come back. And uh, we see this, if you look in verse 21, this is before our passage, 1021. Jesus says this in private. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Right after this, it says, and behold, a lawyer stood up, right? So Luke's kind of given us a nudge here, right? I'm so glad, Lord, that you have hidden these things from the wise of this world and that you've revealed them to children. And then a lawyer stands up, right? So let's set the scene here for just a minute. Well, first, let me me step back. We're gonna look at this in four parts, okay? If you're taking notes, Four parts, and like a good Baptist, they all start with the same letter, okay? So uh, the first part will be the test. Next, we'll talk about the turn. We'll look at the tail with a twist. And then finally, the truth. And this is, this, this is the theme of our passage this morning. Self-righteous people ask for a minimum mandate but the Lord asks for sacrificial love. Self-righteous people ask for a minimum mandate, but the Lord asks for sacrificial love. So let's let's set the scene here and kind of get in the mood and see what, what this drama is all about. It's not just about the parable. It's what happens before the parable. Why does Jesus tell this parable? So let's set the scene. First, it's a lawyer, right? Now, this is not a lawyer who is a law of the land or a law of the government. Uh, This is somebody who studies the law of God. And so he has spent his whole life, not only hours of study, but days, weeks, months, years of studying God's word. He is a professional word studier, okay? This is a guy who knows God's word. 
And uh, being a professional, he would have spent just tons and tons of time in the Word. He would have been a man of wisdom and understanding. Now imagine yourself in a lawyer's shoes, right? Whatever profession you are of right now, however much time you've spent professionally, right? Imagine this lawyer, he spent his whole life studying scripture, and then along comes this young punk teacher from Nazareth, right? Nazareth, people would say, uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus comes out of Nazareth and begins teaching. He's got no academic credentials. He doesn't have any kind of teacher who was above him before. He just comes out and starts teaching. And not only is he teaching, but he's teaching things that are different than what the lawyer is teaching. He's violating the laws which the lawyer has dedicated his life to teaching. And what's even more maddening for this guy is that the crowds just go crazy for him, right? So he wants to come, and he's coming to test Jesus, right? To show that he's a fraud. Now, in reality, Jesus is the only man who ever lived who perfectly fulfilled the law. But one thing that Jesus did regularly was to violate the traditions of men. Traditions of men that actually had nothing to do with Scripture at all. And Jesus does this often, even today, even in our own hearts and minds, and even in our own categories of thought. Jesus comes to us, he comes to our human traditions, he comes to our teachings, and he pushes us to examine them just a little bit further. Our politics, our philosophy, popular culture, whatever it may be, they all have a framework, and often we try to make Jesus fit into that established framework that we already have. But Jesus is trying to break these bounds and say, look at Scripture. Look at the word. What does it say? So we see what the lawyer's motivation is, right? He stood up to test Jesus. His question is not based on actually wanting to know something, to know an answer. His question is there to expose Jesus as a fraud. So the lawyer and Jesus exchange words. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, just, just from this, you have to love Jesus because even from the start, Jesus is beginning to expose the lawyer's heart and not to expose it to uh, bring him to ruin, but to show him the ruin that he's already in. And let me explain. The lawyer is approaching Jesus, not with a question of inquiry, but a question really of accusation. He's trying to set him up. He's making this test for Jesus. Jesus knows that when somebody considers themselves an expert and they ask you a question, no other answer will suffice than exactly the, the answer that they have already predetermined. Have you ever run into somebody like that? They come to ask you a question about something. It's really not like, hey, what do you think about this? It's like, um, what, what have you concluded about this, this matter here? And you, you tell them, and like, well, actually, no, it's wrong. Uh, let me tell you why it's right, right? This is the lawyer's attitude. And so what Jesus does is instead of saying, well, this is, this is how I read the law, he goes back to the lawyer and he says, well, what does the law say? How do you read it? Now, if you've ever been to the optometrist, you know, you go and you sit in that giant chair and they make you like, it just feels really awkward, right? And they make you stick your chin out in that little paper chin rest. And then they start flipping the, the lenses in front of you, right? Have you all experienced that? 
Well, when that happens, right, the, the first time, I don't know if you remember the first time, I was in eighth grade. I did not know that I could see so clearly, but I just, I just never knew. And so we went to the doctor, the optometrist, and uh, got to see what, what was going on. How foolish would it be for me to sit in the chair to get the lenses, and they, they do the first one. I'm like, that's clearer. Thanks. And then I walk out with that prescription, right? That's not going to work. That's not going to fly. But what the lawyer is saying is basically, since I have seen clearer, there's no chance of me seeing clearer than I already do. He's assuming that he knows everything there is to know about the Lord and his goodness. And he's coming to Jesus and he's saying, basically, I know what my prescription is. Do you know what it is? So in this, so Jesus is, is, when anytime we come to Jesus, let me say this, anytime we come to Jesus, we need to expect to have our worldview checked. Right? We need to come to the word, not with uh, an established conclusion that cannot be broken by Jesus, but instead to come to Jesus and to submit to Jesus and to say, I want to see things clearer than I have before. Every time we approach the word, that should be our attitude. But this is not the lawyer's attitude. He knows what he knows and he's set in it and he's, he's coming to test Jesus with it. So additionally in this, Jesus is referring the lawyer to what he knows, to the law, right? Jesus is not the radical that he thinks he is. Jesus is the one who said in Matthew five seventeen, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus points the lawyer to the law. And of course, the lawyer knows the answer already, right? Because he, he's not coming with inquiry. He's coming with a test. And uh, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. I'm oh, sorry, that's, this is Matthew 22. I'm sorry. That's a similar encounter. But he goes to Jesus and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. There's a similar encounter in Matthew 22 uh, where Jesus says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyer puts up this answer. He's kind of ready for Jesus to give some kind of retort that he's going to disagree with because Jesus is just this radical teacher. He's always breaking all the rules. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Well, if you're the lawyer in that position, where do you go from there? Like (laughs) you set up this whole premise to try to trick Jesus and Jesus agrees with you. This brings us to the turn. Now, the only thing we know for sure at this point is that the lawyer wishes to justify himself. We don't know whether he's trying to justify his question, whether he's trying to justify his word and deeds from before, but he's there to justify himself. So it's safe to say at this point that Jesus has disarmed the lawyer in some way. He's answered in a way that the lawyer didn't expect. Because if Jesus had answered as he expected, he wouldn't feel the need to justify himself, right? To try to to make it right. So, seeking to justify himself, he asks a clarifying question. Who is my neighbor? Now, we don't know his heart in asking that, but we can at least say this. Even though his questioning changes course, he's still asking the question from a skewed perspective. 
Now, on this side of salvation history, we can see this a little bit more clearly. He's asking, how can I be more righteous? How can I be more self-righteous? How can I attain more glory for myself? How can I be better than everybody else? How can I be good enough? So, we see the lawyer wants to uphold the law, right? He wants to be justified. He wants to know that he can have eternal life. And essentially what he's asking is not uh, how much is loving too much or how, how do I go too far? He's basically saying, what is the minimum mandate? I mean, what's the least amount I have to do to love my neighbor? Jesus, tell me exactly because, I mean, I don't want to be helping people that don't deserve my help. You see, if you live your life from the perspective that you have yourself to thank for all the good things in life, in practice, you're rejecting that God is merciful and gracious. The job you have, the mentality that you have, the health that you have, whatever it is that you have, you have by God's grace and mercy. And if you approach God thinking that your righteousness, what you have attained is all you and only you, and you will have a skewed perspective of every other person that you encounter. See, it's interesting. The, the lawyer, do you see the question that he doesn't ask? The question that he doesn't ask is, how do I love the Lord with all of my heart, soul, strength, and mind? You know why? He just assumes that he already does. He doesn't ask about this first and better commandment because he just assumes that because I study the word of God, I must love God. What audacity. Moreover, even if he were trying to fulfill the greatest commandment, to love the Lord, right? To love the Lord with heart, soul, strength, and mind. And he's neglecting the second greatest commandment. Then his theology and understanding of the world and of love is lopsided at best and heretical at worst. If the second greatest commandment is like the first, then you can't, there's, in some way, they have to work together. You can't just neglect the second and just go for the first and think that that will be just fine. So who is our neighbor? How does Jesus answer this question? Let's look at the parable, a tale with a twist. Parable is a tale that is designed to teach a lesson. And throughout Luke's gospel, when Jesus tells these parables, he presents this sort of topsy-turvy, upside-down world where things just aren't exactly as they seem. Like the heroes of mankind are just these chumps. And the people who are despised and rejected are the ones who receive glory and attention from the Lord. So Jesus sets the scene. Verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, the the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was well known for being treacherous. And this would be a road that they would have known. It's not just some kind of imaginary road. Uh, Jesus is telling this because people are familiar with this road. Uh, And when he says going down, I mean, he is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The height difference, uh, sea level wise, is 3,425 feet. That's two Empire State Buildings, okay? 
Now, thankfully, it's not a straight down thing. It's 17 miles, okay, 17 miles to walk. But you can imagine uh, just the height difference and the treacherous road. Um, In addition to that, it was rocky and winding. There were lots of caves around. And so it made it really easy for thieves and robbers to hide and just jump out from nowhere and attack. There's actually one pass called the Way of Blood, and people were just regularly attacked there. Okay, so this is, a, this is a scene that would have been familiar to Jesus' audience here. Now let's look at the priest and the Levite together because they're, they're really alike. When we look at the priest and the Levite, uh, first we see the priest and the way that Jesus phrases this, right? Jesus is, is a good storyteller. Uh, the way that Jesus phrases this is almost like he's saying at last, right? He says, now by chance, uh, a priest was going down that road. So that kind of puts us on the edge of our seat. Yes, at least there's a priest that's going to come and help this guy out. Because if there's anybody who can help somebody, it's somebody that intercedes before God on their behalf. This guy's coming to the risk. No, he's not. Oh, I guess I was wrong about that. Passes by on the other side of the road and doesn't even approach the man. Then Jesus says, likewise, a Levite. All right. Second chance, righteous Jew coming through, right? Surely this righteous man will come to his side. Wrong. Passes by. Now we can speculate reasons uh, for these men not to approach him. Um, You know, some have speculated that they might have feared being unclean, ritually unclean from touching a corpse. Uh, But the reality is historically... uh, there was actually an exception for uncleanness if the corpse was neglected. Even if you were a Nazarite, which is like a vow that you would take of of, of purer holiness and righteousness before the Lord. Uh, Perhaps he was hesitant to help somebody who deserved it, right? Maybe this is a robber. Uh, Maybe somebody's trying to trick me even, right? What if he's not really hurt? I better stay over here and stay safe. Even if he was really hurt, maybe somebody else would jump out and attack him then. So maybe I just better stay over here and mind my own business and not put my neck out. It could just be that it's hard. I mean, what do you, what do, you do if you're like walking, let's say you're walking a trail in the woods and you find a half dead body. What do you do? How do, how do you even begin to address the situation? Well, you know, ultimately there's no motivation given. And Jesus' parables are succinct on purpose because if if it were important, it would have been included. In his repetition without explanation of reasoning for why they were neglecting this person, the Lord is teaching the lawyer that righteous deeds and holy titles are not sufficient for neglecting a love for your neighbor. Righteous deeds and holy titles are insufficient it's easy to agree with this mentally as we sit here and we think about it. Yes, yeah, so that's, that's totally insufficient, John. I totally agree with you. How do we agree with this conclusion in reality? I mean, what do our daily lives look like? Ultimately, no excuse is given because no excuse is really good enough. No matter how much 
You study in your room, friend, no matter how many books you've read or Bible studies you've attended, no matter how many debates about theology you can win, no matter how much scripture you can quote, no matter how many theological podcasts you consume, no matter your title or degree, if you have a skewed view of a love for your neighbor, then you're messing it all up. All of these things are helpful. I do all of these things. That, that doesn't mean that I'm attributing it to my righteousness and that doesn't mean that I have the right to just neglect my neighbor. No matter how holy your agenda is on the other side of that road, it's insufficient. Perhaps you remember Matthew, or Jesus in Matthew 25 uh, talking about the final day. This is Matthew 25, 41 through 46. And uh, he's dividing, it says, the sheep from the goats, which basically he's saying these are the, those who are going to be with the Lord in heaven and those who will be cast out. He says to those who are on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. This is the scary part, friends. And these will go away away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Man's half dead. Priest and the Levite, they're gonna walk on their way about their business. So maybe you're saying now, you know, John, I mean, if I saw someone half dead, I would totally just, I would totally go and help them, right? I'm gonna call 911, I'm gonna get the ambulance and we're gonna get this thing situated. What about someone who's dead in their trespasses and sins? What if someone's half dead because they're alive physically but dead spiritually? What about your coworkers and neighbors and friends and family members who don't know the Lord? What about people who are just limping through life because they've been so beat up by the world that they can barely move? Do we pass by on the other side? Do we avoid responsibility? Do we go about our day Do we put our agenda above their welfare? Do we wave from them across the street and never talk to them? The lawyer feels the weight of this parable just like you and I do. For he knows that he falls in the same camp as the priest and the Levite. Then we meet the hero of this parable. And as in many of Jesus' parables, it's someone we did not expect. The twist is the hero is a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews had a centuries-old division. And the Jews were so disgusted by Samaritans that to eat with a Samaritan, just to simply eat with them, was considered just as vile as eating pork. These are people who the Jews would say are unclean, unworthy, despicable, untouchable, Deplorable, 
people to be rejected and mocked, worthy of a thousand Facebook memes. Did you notice that when the lawyer, when the lawyer answers Jesus, he can't even say the word Samaritan? Which one of these people acted like a neighbor? The one who showed him mercy. The lawyer did not expect this man. A Samaritan to outshine exemplary Jews of his day. And Jesus shows us that to love your neighbor is to be present to see a need, to act to meet that need, even when it is costly. Let's look here at just six concrete acts of compassion. Six concrete acts of compassion. First, the Samaritan approaches to examine the man. 33, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. This is the beginning of compassion, friends. Going to your neighbors. Go to them. Examine them. Be with them. See where they are hurting. See what needs need to be met. Approach and don't assume. Right? Maybe the priest and the Levi just, uh, ah, he's, he's good. No, he's good. I, I think I, that guy's good. I'm gonna just keep going. Don't assume that your neighbors are just fine. You see, when he approaches this man, he's, you know, he may be in this past that we're calling the way of blood. He's on this trail where people are just jumping out and robbing people. He sees that somebody's already been robbed. He's risking his life by going to serve this man. By stopping to serve him, he's putting his life down, putting his life on the line. Friends, in loving our neighbors well, we need to make sacrifices. And if we're to say, it's too hard. We need to, need to step back and evaluate. Next, he binds his wounds. Now, it's unlikely that Samaritan is just walking around with gauze, right? Just in his, on his animal or on his person. He's probably ripping his own clothes to make sure that this man is attended to. So these, he's using his material possessions and he's making them secondary to human suffering. He's willing to sacrifice what he has, what he owns, so that somebody else might be served. Next, he anoints him with oil and wine. Oil would have soothed the wound, and wine would have disinfected it. So we see here that in showing compassion, he's meeting real physical needs that this person has. In serving and loving our neighbor well, we need to re- meet real physical needs. He inconveniences himself. Do you see that he loads this man on his own animal, right? It's his own animal. It's not an extra animal that he had. He's loading him up on his own animal, which means that he's walking the rest of the way so that this man might be brought to safety. He's inconvenienced. Think about what it says in Philippians 2, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. This is what the Samaritan does here. He provides shelter. He's setting him up for success as he heals. He pays the cost necessary to provide healing and comfort 
And it's not just that he drops them off and drops the money and leaves. What does he say? He says, when I return. So he's, he's thinking of this as a relationship. He's not just gonna drop them off. He's gonna say, I'm gonna check in on you and see how you're doing later. And when I do, I'm gonna pay the rest of your bill. What's most surprising, and just step back and think about this. If you were a Samaritan and you see this man, he, didn't, he had no reason to stop. It's not like it was his kinsman, right? It's not like somebody would come back and say, hey, uh, so-and-so said you left him behind or that he would have any kind of repercussion. He didn't have to do any of it. There's no obligation for the Samaritan to stop. He took on the burden of another person, perhaps even a person that would have despised them if they were both well. He took on the the burden of another person and made it his own, not only to reduce the man's suffering, but to redeem the man's very life. So here, that brings us to the end of this parable. And when the lawyer answers, he says, the one who showed him mercy, and Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. You know what to do, go and do it. You know, when we, um, when we think about this, we, we see the lawyer starting by asking for a minimum mandate. Jesus has not lightened his burden at all. In fact, he's increased it. And what he has done is he has shown the lawyer in many ways how he falls short. Think about what it says in Romans. This is Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Listen to this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Friends, as you think about this parable, I don't know about you, but this, I mean, it seems weighty. I mean, I I look back on my life and I think about the times where I have failed at this, right? And then Jesus says, if you do this perfectly, then you're gonna have eternal life. Where does that put me? That means that I am not inheriting eternal life. What the law is doing and what Jesus is showing the lawyer is that your good deeds are insufficient. The law will not save us. Let me say that again, friends. The law will not save us. Jesus Jesus is the one who saves us. This brings us to the final point, the truth. So far, we've considered this passage from different perspectives, from the lawyer, priest and the Levite, and the Samaritan. What about the man who lay half dead? Here's the glorious truth of the gospel, friends. Ultimately, we are not the Samaritan. We are not the perfect neighbor. Jesus is the perfect neighbor. He is the truer and better neighbor. You see, we were laying dead at the side of the road in our trespasses and sins. And we thought with great hope that our self-righteousness would save us, but no, it passes us by and leaves us dead. Then along comes someone who we didn't expect one who was despised and rejected, who was under no obligation to serve someone who hated him. 
He approaches us, putting his life on the line to rescue us. He binds our wounds. He anoints us with his spirit. Lifts our burden of sin and carries it on his own back. Walking to the cross. Giving us shelter from the wrath of God. And then he pays the cost necessary to provide healing and comfort for eternity. Do you think that the man who was rescued from death soon forgot the mercy he was shown? Or do you think he was like the wicked servant we read about earlier? Friends, Jesus is the perfect neighbor. And he asks us to go and be like him. Not so that we can earn our righteousness, so that we can glorify our Father in heaven. Let me say this. If you feel guilty right now and you're a Christian, stop. Stop. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ and give him glory because he has taken your sin and he is your righteousness and his perfect righteousness is now yours. Then go and follow Jesus' command to do likewise. If you feel guilty right now and you are not a Christian, we encourage you, turn to Jesus. Jesus ready stands to save you as we sang earlier. He's full of pity, love, and power. As we try to obey Jesus' command to go and do likewise, guilt and shame are not gonna take us very far, friends. I'm just gonna be honest with you. Anything you've done motivated by guilt or shame or fear doesn't last long. It only lasts as long as that subsides. Do-goodery will wear thin and will tire. But as those who were dead in our trespasses and sins, who were rescued, who were brought to life by the Lord, as those who have received sacrificial love and lavish mercy, let us go and do likewise like our Savior. How do we do this? We meditate and pray on the merciful love of Jesus. We invite others to our tables to eat with us. And we talk about the merciful love of Jesus. We meet true physical needs to restore our neighbors. We approach those in peril instead of walking away. We allow our neighbors' needs to be burdens to us so we can inconvenience ourselves. We show men, women, and children where to find shelter in this life and in the life to come. We make costly efforts to maintain relationships over the long haul. And in so doing, we have the joy and the privilege of being like Christ who rescued us from death, brought us to life, and allows us to be here today to worship him. Let's go to him in prayer now. Oh Lord, give us strength. We confess that on our own righteousness, we cannot approach you even in prayer. But Lord, by your perfect righteousness, we come. We are covered by the blood of Jesus. We have been cleansed. We have been made whole by him. And we have the joy of being called the family of God. Lord, we come to you now. We repent of any selfishness. We repent of 
any, any self-righteousness. We turn to you and we ask that you would help us. Help us to see the needs of our neighbors and to meet them with love. Help us to be people who love to be sacrificial in our love. Not because it brings glory to ourselves, but because it allows us the opportunity to point to Jesus. Give us strength, give us wisdom, give us insight as we go out. Give us a joy in doing all of these things because you are the perfect neighbor. You rescued us, redeemed us, and made us whole. And you give us the joy of going out into the world and doing the same. Help us to share your gospel and your love with our neighbors. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.